Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Last week, the U.S. National Telecommunications and Information Administration, the NTIA, launched an inquiry seeking comment on, quote, what policies will help businesses, governments, and the public be able to trust that artificial intelligence systems work as claimed and without causing harm? Assistant Secretary of Commerce and NTIA Administrator Alan Davidson announced the request for comment in an appearance at the University of Pittsburgh's Institute of Cyber Law, Policy, and Security. And alongside him was NTIA Senior Advisor for Algorithmic Justice, Ellen P. Goodman, who said the goal is to create policy that ensures safe and equitable applications of AI that are transparent, respect civil and human rights, and are compatible with democracy. In this episode, we'll hear from Ellen Goodman, who is at NTIA on leave from her role as co-director and co-founder of the Rutgers Institute for Information Policy and Law. And we'll speak with Dr. Mikhail Luria, a research fellow at the Center for Democracy and Technology, who had a column in Wired this month under the headline, Your ChatGPT Relationship Status Shouldn't Be Complicated. She says the way people talk to each other is influenced by their social roles, but chatbots like ChatGPT are blurring the lines of communication. First up, Ellen Goodman. I'm Ellen Goodman. I'm usually a distinguished professor at Rutgers Law School, but I'm currently on leave uh, serving at NTIA in the U.S. Department of Commerce, and my title is Senior Advisor for Algorithmic Justice. Is this the first time the NTIA has had a Senior Advisor for Algorithmic Justice? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a new position. I'm on an IPA, so I'm I'm on this uh, sort of have this status of a, of a loner. And how long will you be in the role? Uh, I hope to be there basically through the end of the calendar year. You just last week have announced this uh, request for comment, inviting in uh, experts and others in the community to essentially provide NTIA with ideas about uh, AI accountability. Can you explain a little bit about this call, what you're hoping to get, and what might happen as a result of folks contributing ideas? Yeah, so um, let me just back up for anyone who doesn't know what NTIA is, because it's a small agency in the Department of Commerce, but sort of you know, hits above its, punches above its weight. Um, It is uh, by statute, the president's advisor on technology and communications policy. And so this particular request for comment, and it does not have, I should say, it does not have regulatory authority. So the output of this um, request for comment will be a report and recommendations. And the, we're calling it a request for comment on account AI accountability policy, and I guess so our sister agency is NIST, and um, NIST has conducted, as probably many of your listeners know, um, this you know really sophisticated AI risk management framework. And it's voluntary, and it is descriptive and not prescriptive. And so it talks about measuring and managing, or provides tools for measuring and managing AI risk but it does not purport to kind of have a normative position on what risks are acceptable. And then in addition to that, I'm just, you know, Justin sort of giving you the landscape and then I can, I can sort of say more specifically what we're trying to do. In addition to that, there's the, um, the, the White House's OSTP's um, blueprint for an AI bill of rights, 
which is also guidance and sort of aspirational and hortatory. And it focuses on how AI systems ought to protect, you know, fundamental civil rights. And then where we come in is we are hoping to provide policymakers, you know, especially Congress and federal policymakers, but actually, you know, also we're seeing so much activity in the states, also hope to be helpful there, you know, to actually drill down on, you know, if we act, if we want to see AI systems act responsibly and, and the, the kind of um, abstract noun that the federal government uses is trustworthy, right? Trustworthy AI. If we want to see that happen and we think maybe it's going to require regulation, maybe it's self-regulation, maybe it's the market, maybe it's technical solutions, and we're asking about all of that. But actually, what do we need? What tools are necessary? Policy tools um, and also, you know, sort of governance tools are necessary to make that happen. And I can be, if you want, I can get more specific about the questions we're asking and our kind of theory of the case, if you want. Well, you've got three main kind of areas that you're interested in uh, that are posted with the, you know, with the call, with the request. Maybe let's talk a little bit about them specifically. The first question is, you know, what kind of data access is necessary? to conduct audits and assessments. And, you know, right now that's a hot topic, uh, particularly with this new species of generative AI, large language models that we're seeing out in the wild. Folks are wondering, you know, to what extent do we need to understand uh, training sets? To what extent do we need to understand the specifics of how these systems are coming to the conclusions that they come to in order to be able to test their reliability? So let me first say that we're asking about, um, in addition to audits and assessments, we're also asking about certifications. And so we're really asking about the for the life cycle of the system, whether we're looking at pre-market and whether or not there should be required certifications before a tool or a system is is introduced to the market, either either in a testing phase or or in an actual marketing phase. And we're also asking, you know, through its life, through its its life cycle, when there are moments and these could be required or self-regulatory for audit of the system against either third-party benchmarks or the the um, you know, we can see that in Europe the DSA is sort of against the the risk assessment that the company did itself. Everyone's talking about that, right? There ought to be, there ought to be, we ought to have, but what actually is necessary to make that work? And so with respect to data access, we could say sort of data and information access. And so it might be how much, how do you get into the training data to examine it if you're a third-party auditor or if you're a certifier and you want to make sure that data set was complete and representative, how can you assess that? But we could also talk, kind of more generally about what sorts of information is necessary. Um, and so with generative models, my understanding is that in addition to the training data, the reinforcement learning is also, you know, very critical to understand because that sort of creates the the refusal space where the system won't return a result. You know, it, it's it's critical to understanding what, where was where was the go territory, where was the no-go territory, and does that comport to you know, we can just put in bracket standards, whether those are mandatory standards or or voluntary standards. And then we could also in that bucket of kind of data access, you know, we can throw and we ask about all of this. Are we talking about auditor access under some sort of NDA? Are we talking about researcher access that's more open? And we might also be talking about kind of 
transparency mechanisms like model cards or system cards or things that would be artifacts that would be generated and maybe they're mandatory, maybe they're voluntary. Um, and in either case, should they be standardized or you know, how do we make this work most efficiently? So that at the point at which whatever that point is, that a third party or a first party, the company itself, you know, is going to make representations about what this system is and how trustworthy it is. Do we have the tools? And we're sort of describing this as ecosystem facilitation. You know, are there the personnel, the resources, the data access, et cetera, to make that work? There are a lot of interesting sub questions in here, uh, everything from the timing of audits and assessments uh, on through to uh, the different factors that that should inform how those assessments operate. And an interesting question about the degree to which maybe government disclosures or assessments are different from private sector ones. So, I mean, I think, you know, what we've seen, two examples we've seen so far, one is draft and one's enacted. The draft one is the um, is the Washington, D.C. kind of algorithmic audit uh, requirement. Again, it's just a draft, but a requirement that AI systems be audited to the extent that they affect important life decisions, so sort of high-risk ones. And my understanding is that that audit would be disclosed only to the regulator, um, and then the regulator would do what the regulator would do, as opposed, I think, to the to the, the enacted New York City Law 144, which is for the hiring algorithms where an audit would be made public. So yeah, you could imagine kind of very different requirements if it's just going to be for the regulator, then that obviously requires regulatory capacity that um, you know we need to think about and make sure that any you know I think it's true for both of those laws actually that regulatory capacity is a really tricky aspect of all of this. IP is uh, you know another one of those hot button issues right now when it comes to artificial intelligence. Uh, what are you looking for here? Um, I mean, we're really sort of looking for both industry and civil society, um, as well as academics, to help us understand what the landscape looks like and what the sensitivities are. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of sensitivities around trade secrets, um, and this is not new, right? We saw this all the way through the the, the social media battles over access and transparency and um, accountability. And so we expect to receive a lot of comments that Transparency, access to data can only go so far because um, these are these are critical trade secret and intellectual property rights that need to be protected. And we also expect to get comment, hopefully, about where where there are mechanisms to sort of deal with that. How you can you know maybe create sort of synthetic data or kind of workarounds, uh, you know, and maybe you know we've also we've all heard about these audits that have NDAs attached to them, right? And so um, they're less useful because we can't sort of peek under the hood of the audit. So anyway, I guess what, what we're hoping for is just more information so we can um, begin to sort of make recommendations about that issue. There's a specific question in here about potentially what types of activities government should fund to advance a strong AI accountability system. Are there proposals out there that you've seen already uh, that sort of fit the bill uh, of this question? Or can you say anything more about what types of proposals you're looking for here? Yeah, I mean, I can say that that one thing um, we've heard a lot of from, especially from academics, is that, you know, and I'm talking about computer scientists and data scientist academics, is that 
the, let's just say we're, we're focused on the work of audits, assessments, and certifications. Um, there's just not the personnel to do that at, at the scale at which it's it's imagined if every jurisdiction, let's say there's an EUAI Act everywhere. And so um, there are sort of like conformity assessments and, and audits and, and uh, uh, so both pre-market and post-market surveillance, as it's called. There aren't the people to do that. That kind of work right now is not that incentivized in, in academic programs. Um, and so one could imagine, and I'm sure there already are NSF grants, but one could imagine a much more robust um, intervention by the federal government, also in the form of prizes, right, to make that work kind of more, you know, bet, more highly rewarded in academia. Um, another idea, and of course, like Ruman Chowdhury did this at, at Twitter, the, the fairness bounty. So, you know, you could imagine kind of prizes and bounties that were connected to some sort of accountability regime. I mean, I, I, I very much doubt that those are a replacement um, for other kind of, I mean, those are kind of soft law approaches. I don't know that they're a replacement either for self-regulation or for regulation, but um, they're definitely, you know, sort of an ancillary tool that are that are used in other areas that we should be thinking about. I mean, there are, you know, 34 discrete questions with a lot of sub-questions uh, in this request. To what extent are, you know, are you looking at the EU AI Act uh, and some of the sort of machinations that they've had to go through in that process to date uh, to inform, you know, this inquiry or uh, some of the other thinking you're doing? I think it's definitely relevant. So we ask about lessons learned. Um, you know, I think the EU AI Act takes this horizontal approach. It's really kind of a product safety approach to AI, which is very different, I think, from what we can expect in, in the U.S., um, which, which is, you know, tends to be a much more vertical sectoral approach. Um, so I, I don't think it's you know, as we say in law, it's it's sort of it's not precedential, but it's um you know informative. But um, you know, one of the to me one of the most interesting questions in the EU AI Act, which is relevant um, for all AI governance, is that you know there's there's a kind of model of you know standard setting, and then the state, and then you you build to the standard or you audit to the standard. But because it's now well recognized, and you know, you see this all over the NIST um, AI risk management framework, that these are socio-technical systems that, for a lot of our kind of normative goals and you know, or trustworthy AI components, it's hard to imagine that they could be reduced to a standard, and that even if they could be, like if even if one of the standard-setting organizations could create, you know, a standard for how accurate. A, you know, a response to a prompt in um, a generative model should be like, what's an acceptable degree of accuracy, even if they could set that standard, you know, those standard setting bodies are not hugely democratic or account democratically accountable. And so there's a problem there, right? Like there's a mismatch between, and this is being recognized in Europe. I'm not saying that they don't realize it's an issue, but, you know, we asked some questions about sort of the alignment with democratic principles of some of the AI governance ideas and, and also um, obviously AI systems themselves. So, so that would be, that's one feature of the EU regulatory regime I'm particularly interested in. One of the things that the EU AI Act is doing is trying to kind of make distinctions, of course, between high risk uh, and lower risk, you know, categories of AI. I assume even the answer to some of the questions you just raised would, it just depends on the application, really. You know, in some cases, we're probably fine with 
uh, language model spitting out, you know, sub 50% uh, kind of responses in terms of being accurate if it's in a creative field or something along those lines. But if it's informing some kind of, you know, crucial information system, then, you know, 99% or better is going to be necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess I could say two things about that. One is, you know, I think that's in some ways the virtue of a vertical kind of use case specific approach um, to AI governance. On the other hand, it also kind of raises, um, it's it's one of the reasons why this question of when do you assess the system, whether it's an audit or a certification, because if we're talking about foundational models, we don't really know the use case, right? And the use case changes. And um, I mean, it's true that they have, I think OpenAI has in its terms of service, like don't use this for for anything that's um, too high stakes, like don't use it in high risk applications. but we know that it will be, right? And so um, so I, I think that's absolutely true. And that's the right way to think about it is a risk-based, in a risk-based way, but it's not quite clear how that maps on to the life cycle um, or, or stage of development of, a, of an AI system. One thing you do give a nod to is the importance of open source uh, potentially in the AI ecosystem. I just want to ask you a little bit about that. Is there are there kind of complexities to thinking about open source models or open source implementations of AI systems that you think are going to be difficult for regulators to grapple with? Well, I think if we're if we're focused on AI accountability policies, um, you know, you can see pros and cons, right? So open source really helps out with sort of the opacity, the, you know, data access, the getting under the hood. On the other hand, they then are much more adaptive and agile and changing. And so when you're talking about accountability, it puts a lot of stress on the question of who, like who is accountable and when, um, when it's open source and it's being modified. I mean, I guess it, the same thing is true, even if it's not open source, but it's an adaptive as opposed to a locked model. In some ways, and we'll be very interested in, in hearing responses on this, because I think someplace we we ask um, one of those 34 questions, um, you know, what is the respective role of think we say, you know, courts and legislatures and regulators and in industry standard setting or, or other industry bodies. And, um, you know, one thing one might say is that that question we were just discussing about who is accountable, the courts will decide that, right? And that's just a liability question. We've always had complicated contributions to liability. Um, and that might be part of the answer, but I suspect, you know, as we've seen in other areas of tech, I mean, first of all, there's the whole question of whether or not Section 230 applies here, especially when you're talking about, I know you had a whole fascinating um, series on that. But um, uh, so so we don't know exactly how liability is going to work in this context, but some of our questions are designed to provoke a discussion of that. I think it's fair to say there's a sort of sense in uh, the kind of technology community that the technology is moving very, very quickly that there are profound risks to a lot of different aspects of society, to the economy, to democracy more generally. And so far, the federal government, we've got, you know, a blueprint for a bill of rights. We've got, you know, risk management framework. We'll have this advisory result. Do you think that uh, policymakers can catch up or that we can move move quickly enough? I know that you're obviously, you know, pushing ahead as, as, as fast as you can in your role, but is there a you know, are we going to be kind of stuck in this slight mismatch between 
the pace of technological change and the machinations of government uh, for a while? I mean, there's un- undoubtedly there's a pacing problem and there's been a pacing problem with law since we entered the digital age. And I don't think we've solved it, whether we can solve it, not without, I don't think without a huge amount of innovation in our policy, in our politics, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I think we definitely have a pacing problem. Um, and and I think on the one hand, there's a trope in the press, which I don't think is fair, which is that Congress doesn't get it and the regulators don't get it. And they're woefully, you know, it's sort of tech ignorant. And I just, that might've been true at one point, but we actually, there are actually dozens of proposed pieces of legislation that weren't developed for, um, for generative models, but they apply. Um, and so, which is, you know, kind of the beauty of law is that you don't have to have in mind exactly the tech that's coming down the road. Um, now, none of those passed and, you know, it's overdetermined that none of those passed, right? But um, I, I don't think law is helpless. Um, I don't think the pacing problem needs to be as bad as it has been, but I also think invariably there is a pacing problem. Well, comments are open until June 12th of 2023. So if folks want to weigh in on this one, uh, they have the opportunity to do so. The listings at the Federal Register, I'll include it in the show notes here so that folks can find it. Ellen Goodman, can we have you back to tell us what you come up with after this process is complete? Yeah, I love it. And Justin, thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press/podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. Scholars researching human-computer interaction have been studying chatbots for decades. My next guest draws on the work of Byron Reeves, Clifford Nass, and Sherry Turkle to explore the risks posed by the conversational style of today's systems, such as ChatGPT, which attempt to emulate people as closely as possible. Hi, I'm Michal Luria. I'm a researcher at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Michal, tell me a little bit about your research and how you got interested in chatbots. Sure. So um, I started working on social agents from the perspective of robots and trying to understand in a research lab that I was part of in Israel um, to try to understand what are the empathy impacts that physical objects that are that resemble um, human characteristics have and how that can impact people's behaviors or uh, feelings or how mostly how people feel empathy towards a thing that is uh, basically a technology that also exists in physical space. So that's how kind of where I began with. But over the years, I went into kind of the more broad spectrum of social agents, which also includes conversational agents, chatbots, um, and, and more robots. But all of these have in common the socialness that they portray in the way that they interact with people. So it's technology with this extra layer of socialness that really makes things different. And I started from being very curious about how that could be interesting and helpful and, and support all kinds of causes or, or goals. Later, I found a more skeptical perspective because it's it has these powers over people and how they interact with 
technology and and that could be used in all kinds of harmful ways. So I think we need to be more cautious when introducing social technology. So there are plenty of headlines about this stuff right now. Uh, You point to uh, the much discussed Kevin Roos column, his conversation with Bing's chatbot. Of course, lots of folks are interacting with ChatGPT in different ways, exploring how to engage with it to try to get the most out of it, uh, both for work and for entertainment. What are the risks of these interfaces as you see them? And why is this moment with ChatGPT different? I think the Kevin Roost example is a good one because Kevin Roost is an extremely informed individual who knows so much about the technology. He's a tech journalist. So really, if anyone should know to not be overwhelmed by this kind of interaction, it's someone with that role. But that really exemplifies well why it doesn't really matter the knowledge you have. The way that social technologies work or technologies that have the social element to them work is that they impact our brain in a way that we can't really control, um, even if we know more and we understand that this is technology. I think this can be more risky in the context of more vulnerable groups, teenagers who are more susceptible to, to being harmed by technology, and just the way that technology can have that social impact on us could be dangerous because it could really go in many different routes. It's not only the content itself that the technology can produce, which can be harmful in many ways, and I think has has been discussed um, in many uh, different venues, but it's also just the fact that it's social can have some mental impacts on people and, and kind of create these conversations that can be really disturbing. And I think the reason why it's different with ChatGPT than other previous technologies is in in two ways. First, I think ChatGPT is very, very impressive in how the language seems natural. It seems reliable. You know, a lot of times people kind of interpret chatbots as dumb and not uh, sophisticated and having a bunch of grammar issues and making mistakes. And so it's easier to dismiss them. But when a technology speaks so well and, and understands the flow of conversation from one topic to another, it really creates a sense of nuance, of understanding, you know, the conversation and the full context of it. And it creates the sense of an entity that that knows what's happening, which is not the case, but that's the sense that it creates in people. And that's kind of the way that um, we naturally perceive the the way the conversation goes. And that's why I think it's different than what we've had so far. So with, let's say, Alexa, conversations are very single instant. So, right, they just, every conversation begins and ends with one correspondence, with one person and this one entity. But here, there's a more continuous interaction. People go back and forth and describe what they didn't like, or the, con- the conversation kind of builds up uh, one sentence after another. And so that that really makes a huge difference, I think, in the way that people understand the interaction and understand what's happening on the other side of the conversation. What you're arguing for here are, are boundaries, essentially some sort of sense of the clear role that the AI is meant to play in a particular conversation. But, you know, I mean, I'm struck by when I interact with with these things, this sort of almost sort of declarative or in some cases sort of stentorian tone um, that the thing often takes that 
you know, makes it perhaps seem more confident in its output than perhaps it should be. Yes. In the Wired uh, article, I argue for creating more boundaries and social roles for these kinds of agents. And the reason um, why I think that could be a good way to, to design AI agents is that it's trying to emulate uh, human conversation. But the thing that humans have that this kind of agent doesn't is we always have a role, some kind of social role. It's not always fully defined, right? Let's say this conversation that we're having has a professional tone to it, but maybe more friendly. It's not very, you know, we have these kind of uh, ideas of what kind of conversation we're having, who are the individuals who are participating, what is the expected content more content more or less. And if one of us would say something extremely outside of that scope, that would be you know, alarming and weird. And it would just, uh, you know, stop the conversation most probably. With ChatGPT, we you can kind of do whatever you want and you can say whatever you want. You can take it into like a more informational conversation or you could ask it personal questions about how it perceives the world, like uh, uh, the conversation with Kevin Roos. And so I think not having these boundaries is problematic, both from the designer side and from the user side. From the designer side, it's problematic because it's very difficult to make sure your technology is responsible when you don't have any boundaries and what the interaction would be. Now, they do have some boundaries. They try to put some boundaries around things like giving people tips on you know, har- how to harm themselves or um, how to harm others, things like that. But we've seen in previous, in previous articles that there are walkarounds for many of those. So these red lines kind of work, but not fully. But also, they still don't really encapsulate what the interaction should be for a particular conversation. And so that's also problematic for the user because the user doesn't really know, doesn't really come with a set of expectations. And we know from prior work, prior research, that expectations really help a technology be effective and the interaction to be valuable for for the user. And so by having agents that have a more specific role or a predefined goal, which they try to fulfill, could help users come with adjusted expectations and to know what to anticipate from the conversation that they're going to have. Um, And this can vary, right? Vary depending on what the implementation is or what the desired outcome is for a particular um, instance of ChatGPT. But having this kind of open-ended, potentially could do it all AI is difficult to do right right off the bat. I think that because this is a new technology, we need to kind of start slow, maybe try to define boundaries and social boundaries more clearly, and then see how this develops and how this technology moves along. And that could help people criticize it and try to understand what are the societal impacts in a more manageable way than the way it is now. What you've just said sounds very reasonable to me, but is totally counter to what OpenAI and other Silicon Valley firms are trying to do. They don't want to have particular agents that are bounded for particular use cases with particular rules around those interactions. They're trying to create generalized platforms that can be used by anybody in any circumstance. And it's incredibly difficult to predict exactly 
what a person might like to say to uh, one of these systems and, and what types of response are best going to satisfy their prompt or their query. Um, so I don't know, how do you kind of square your thinking with the underlying modus operandi of Silicon Valley? I think Silicon Valley has a lot of uh, visions that are maybe problematic um, in other people's point of view. So, you know, this vision of an can-do-it-all entity, an AI agent that can do it all for you is okay. But even when you say, oh, an AI that can do it all, usually people have a specific role in mind, I think. So let's take an example of um, Iron Man's robot, Jarvis. Right, that's a vision that Silicon Valley people like, I'm guessing. So that robot still has somewhat of a defined role. It doesn't has some boundaries in what it does or doesn't do. It's a helpful assistant. It helps with physical stuff because it's a robot. Um, it's super attentive. It has these like personality characteristics. And so at the end, it is still within a specific social role. And it's okay for OpenAI to want people to innovate with an AI in all kinds of ways, but still they can provide more ways of doing it in a structured format. So one thing that I talk about in the article is that OpenAI introduced the system input in chat uh, GPT-4, where you can add some high level um, descriptions of what the interactions should be. So what people previously did as a workaround in chat GPT-3, where they said, Pretend that you're a playwriter and you're writing a play about this and this, right? That was kind of a way to, or, you know, an example, another example. There was a workaround that people did with ChatGPT3. Let's say they wanted a recommendation for where to travel and you couldn't ask that directly, but you could say, pretend that you're a, a travel agent in a play. What would you recommend for a vacation uh, for a family of four? I think that in ChatGPT4, the system space is supposed to allow a designated area where people could put that kind of input. And I think that it it's a start for trying to give some high-level guidelines of what this agent should be doing or what is the social role that it's going to fulfill in this next conversation. And I think there are, more can be done in that direction to really make it more constrained and more gradual in the way that people use this technology. So if folks at OpenAI, perhaps another one of the companies that's working on generative AI systems were to read your wired column and decide, Nicole is going to be our head of interaction design. Uh, we're going to give her a call and, and you know, bring her in and put her in charge. What do you think would be the first thing you'd do? Research. It's not a solved question, right? I think there is there is a need, which is providing more structure to these interactions. And I think there is more to be done to understand exactly what that structure should be and how it should be rolled out. And if OpenAI are going in a direction of selling their technology to other companies and other companies would be able to implement it in all kinds of um, ways that seem right for that particular company, then I think it would make sense to introduce some way of defining boundaries um, or defining a social role. And I'll give one example, um, which I think is is a good example for this, um, which is the Bloomberg GPT, where they tried to create an AI that would be 
some kind of fin- financial advisor. And so it was trained only on financial data. And so I think this is a really good example because Bloomberg had a goal. They want an AI agent that can give adv- financial advice. And accordingly, they designed the system, right? They designed the input data. They probably designed the way that it um, converses and the way that it interacts with people. And so once you have that idea, you can use the technology in a very intentional way. And I think it's much safer to do it that way than to say, oh, here's an AI that can do anything, just throw things at it and let's see what happens. Because we know that hasn't worked well in the past with other technologies that were really groundbreaking. And maybe there's space to open it up later on and to provide more kind of flexibility and what can be done and what is the social role. But I think because we don't know what the impacts are going to be, it's better to start slow and to define the different AIs one step at a time. Well, let's hope you get that phone call, perhaps uh, over this wire call. Or t- I'm not going to be sitting next to the phone waiting, just so you know. Well, we'll be waiting for your next column in Wired. Um, Thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you, Justin. It was great uh, being here. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests, Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.